I want to encourage you to make that evening a priority. December the 8th, it is one of the, the few times each year that we attempt to bring all of Heart of Life together uh, in one place. And as Peter reminded us, we didn't even get to do that last year. And, and, and so we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the past, which by that time will be 2021 and all that God has blessed us with this year. We're going to celebrate the present with some baptisms. So we're looking forward to that. And I want to encourage any of you that may need to take that step of baptism, let's talk. Let's talk about getting you set up for them. And then uh, we're going to celebrate the future. We're, we're going to talk about um, some of the things that we see God pushing us towards. So uh, going to be some great food, going to be some great music. Uh, we're going to worship more than we normally do at those events just because we, we just haven't been together in a long time. So to get to, to worship God together, going to be some great food, some great music, and a great family. So I want to encourage you, go ahead, sign up, all right? Help us out. That helps us with food prep and all that. Go ahead and sign up, and let's plan to be with one another on that night. Also, another priority that I am officially calling for help today. On Tuesdays after school, we have more than 70 middle schoolers showing up at the vault. How cool is that? But that means we need at least 10 people, 10 leaders for every time 70-plus middle schoolers are showing up at the vault, right? Now, that happens on Tuesdays between 3 to 5, and so I know for some of you, uh, work may prohibit you from being able to do that, but for a lot of people, other people, you can. And for some of you, you have a work schedule that you can flex, and you can take two hours here or there and, and choose how you do that. Ten people allows us to structure it in a way that I've already had somebody say, hey, I want to do a cooking class. That's cool. You'd be surprised how those kids respond to a cooking class. Um, usually there's some arts and crafts. They can play ball. But when we, when we get to ten leaders, it lets us move beyond just crowd control to where we can do groupings and suddenly relationships start to be built. And why would we build relationships because we want those kids to know the love of Jesus. So I'm saying, help us. Um, we're going to do a meeting tomorrow. I know it's short notice, but we're going to even start tomorrow, 3 o'clock at the vault. Um, going to be just talking about how we're going to structure going forward. There won't be a vault this week because of holidays, but the next week we would be um, kicking off that strategy. And so I want to invite you to be a part. Come on. God's got 70-plus kids showing up at our doorstep. Let's show them what the love of Jesus looks like, all right? I'm inviting you to be a part of that. Welcome to Heart of Life today. Um, whether you're seated at one of the campuses or a part of one of the mission sites or maybe just on the road, uh, we are grateful for this gift of video that allows us to connect wherever we may be and I'm thanking you that today, before you cheer for the Chiefs, which you will be, right? I realize I may be talking to a few people, 
who won't be cheering for the Chiefs. My message is God loves you, but you need prayer, right? You need prayer. Before you cheer for the Chiefs, though, we get to come together and cheer for Jesus, and he deserves more praise than anybody else. So we are drawing close to the end of our year-long study of two books of the Bible, Luke and Acts. Now, we chose those two because they're written by the same guy, Dr. Luke, and they're really just a continuous story. Acts just picks up where Luke leaves off. Today, we've arrived at Acts chapter 23. In the story, the apostle Paul, that's who Luke is tracking his his movements, Paul is now a prisoner. And he is going to be a prisoner all the way to the end of this story. He has been, we're going to call it, arrested by the Romans, but really only to stop the Jewish people from rioting because of Paul and, and, and really to stop them from killing Paul. The Roman commander is trying to find out what is going on here, what has Paul done, what is the issue, and so the Roman commander has invited the Jewish ruling council, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, he's invited them to Fort Antonia, which is right there beside the temple, but it's his territory, not their territory. And so he invites them there, and now Paul stands before them. And we pick up the story, listening to what Paul has to say. Acts chapter 23, verse one. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Here's what I think Paul's saying. I may be on trial here, but I'm not wrestling with any guilt. Because God is not convicting me of anything that I have done wrong in this instance. Now, remember, Paul has been accused of being against the Jews, being against God's law, being against the temple. He wasn't against any of that. They were just making stuff up. They were just telling lies, trying to stir up the people. But Paul says, now that he stands before them, look, if you are going to come up with a crime that I've committed, you're going to have to come up with a crime that God is not aware of because he's not convicting me of anything that I have done. My conscience is clear. And I thought about that this week. When they hear Paul say, my conscience is clear, I'm, I'm imagining that most of the leaders in that room that day, and there, there's a lot of them, they cannot relate to a clear conscience. They have never known what it feels like to have a conscience that is clear. 
Now, they have been diligent about, like, the the Old Testament system of offering sacrifices when they should. When they offer the sacrifices, they are acknowledging that sin has been committed and there is a price to be paid for, for sin. But those Old Testament sacrifices, Hebrews reminds us, could not clear the conscience. The only sacrifice sufficient to actually forgive sin was Jesus. And because Paul has called on the name of Jesus and Paul has experienced forgiveness, he truly knows a clear conscience. Most of them in that room have never known such. Watch where this goes. Verse 2. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I know we don't yet know what that means, but you kind of want to cover your ears, don't you? You kind of got the feeling that I don't, I don't think that was a compliment, right? God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. The word for strike there, by the way, is not a slap. It's a particular word that means a blow with either a club or the fist. He commands that Paul be struck. And Paul reacts. He reacts with, right, you strike me, God is going to strike you. Now, now why would he react that way? Well, he knows that God repays evil. Paul is quite, quite aware of how God deals with wrong, and so he calls on God's vengeance, but at the same time, he calls him a whitewashed wall. Now, here's what that means. It's the imagery of a wall that has been beautifully surfaced. It is, say, painted white. The wall looks beautiful, but when you push on the wall, it just falls over. There's no substance to it. It's a phrase in Paul's day of declaring, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. You look you look good on the outside, you've got this surface, but, but, but inside, right, you, you, you are false. Because for him to order Paul to be struck was actually against the law. There were laws to protect the rights of a person who was on trial. And so here they are claiming to put Paul on trial. This is sort of a legal process. And in the meantime, the law is broken. But watch what happens here. Verse 4. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I think Paul messed up here. 
I think he messed up here. I think he sins here. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm okay with that. You know why? Because Paul is a man. And so I, I don't think this is as shocking as we need, you know, perhaps to make it out to be because except for Jesus, come on, show me any person that if you don't put them in the exact right pressure packed circumstance where, where everything is pr- pressured in on them, show me one person who has not at some point responded wrongly. Paul says he didn't realize it was the high priest. And he immediately knows that what he just did, what he just said, it is against God's law to speak against the high priest in that way. Paul is actually quoting the law of God from Exodus. So, remarkable to me that in this, in this little story, tucked away in Acts chapter 23, there are numerous lessons that we can get from this little piece One of which is this reminder. God designs authority and submission. And man, does our particular world need to hear such truth. God designs authority and submission. And all throughout scripture, you see God, God designs that parents are to lead their children. And God designs that children are to willingly submit to their parents. For either to not do that is sin. It is sin for parents not to lead. It is sin for children not to willingly submit. Uh, the scripture talks about right what, what I would call law enforcement and, and, and citizens. There's that place in Romans where Paul says, if you do right, you don't have anything to fear. But if you do wrong, they do not bear the sword for nothing, right? There is a picture of scripture of, of, of governments and, and, and nations subjecting to government authority. Here's what God knows and he wants us to realize. Authority is better than chaos. And so he designs authority. But the key to authority is willing submission. I'm using the willing submission because I see the need for order. I'm going to go so far as to say imperfect authority is better than no authority at all because no authority at all just leads to total chaos. And so the answer to imperfect authority is not to defund authority. Then there is no order. There's no order. Now, I know here, this is an example of authority not doing what they should be doing because this high priest is not God-honoring here. He has broken the law. Here's an example of a leader who is not doing what God said do, but he's in an ordained role from God, and Paul recognizes that. Now, I think there would be some people who would argue, and maybe you would ask this question, but, but I mean, come on, 
the high priest is wrong here. So, I mean, aren't we just dealing with Paul who's just responding to wrong being, being leveraged toward him? And it is the reminder to us that we don't measure our actions according to the actions of others. We are called to follow Jesus, that our actions respond to him. In other words, a second little lesson tucked away in this story is wrong doesn't justify wrong. Because we live in a culture right now where sometimes that seems to be the thinking because something was wrong, then therefore we can respond in the same way. Leaders are accountable to God for how they lead. Don't ever forget, from parents to police to presidents, Leaders are accountable to God for how they lead. And they will answer to him. We are accountable to God for how we are called to willingly submit to those God has allowed to be in leadership. Unless... They ask you, biblical picture is, unless they ask you to do something that God says is sin, then you follow God, but you know that there are consequences that probably come with that. That's the instruction. We, in the country in which we live, it is a unique system where we are given the opportunity to be highly involved in changing what we don't agree with, right? I hope you realize what I'm going to call that uh, unique. It's a, it's a blessing. There are a lot of places in the world that you don't have such a voice, but to be able to be highly involved in, in changing, trying to change what, what you don't agree with. But in the meantime, until those policies or those laws or those mandates are changed, we are called to submit willingly unless it is something that God says is sin. And if it is, then I'm going to go with God, but I'm going to know that there are likely consequences that we face. I realize that that's not the main point of this story, but when I'm reading it this week, I'm going, oh my goodness, what a reminder for the world of the design that God has put in place of authority and submission and how we do that right. Back to the story. Paul owns his sin. He looks at the high priest He realizes that high priest is the one in the place of authority. God has said, don't speak against the high priest. He did it. He just owns him. He owns his sin. Paul condemns himself in front of the court by quoting God's law and saying, I I messed that up. Now, I I think maybe we we would possibly lean toward this possibility. Did Paul really sin here? Like, 
is this really him intentionally sinning or is Paul just jumping on a strategic like leveraging moment when he, when he sees the high priest do something wrong? And I'm saying I don't think so. I think Paul sins here. I think he messes up here. One reason would be Paul says, I didn't know it was the high priest. I don't think Paul's lying. I don't think he's lying when he says, I didn't know that it was the high priest. I, I, the, the language that he uses here, if you are in a court setting and someone does something contrary to the law, you certainly are going to call them on what they just broke but you're probably not gonna attach some not so kind names to that declaration. That's just like not what you would do in a court setting. That doesn't set you up for success, right? You're gonna point out they're wrong, but you're not gonna call them up. You're not. He reacts and he calls them a name. The word for insult here, when they accuse him of insulting the high priest, it is a word used multiple times throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's a verb like it is here. Sometimes it's a noun. Sometimes it's an adjective. It's always associated with anger. Um, in, in 1 Peter, he says this word, he uses this word to describe what they did to Jesus before, as they crucified him, the way they insulted him, what they accused him of. Um, in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 4, it's used as the opposite of blessing. Well, what's the opposite of blessing? Cursing. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this word is in a list of qualities that are declared not a part of the kingdom of God. It's used multiple times. And I'm saying Paul recognizes what he did. He gives no excuses. See, I think he could have given some excuses. Because they are not meeting where the Sanhedrin normally would have met. Remember, they're meeting in, in Fort Antonio. And so, and so the, the high priest is probably not in the normal garb that he would be in if he was in the, in the normal place the Sanhedrin would meet. He's, he's not seated in his normal seat of ruling. I also think you could throw in, we know from Scripture that Paul struggles with eyesight. In Galatians, he mentions the struggle with his eyesight. At the end of the book of Galatians, he, he speaks about the people who love him so much that they would literally give him their eyes if they could. I think you could put a, I think if Paul wanted to present a defense and he would go, oh, my eyesight is bad and, and, and you know, he could throw in and I can't quite hear as good as I used to. And so I, I didn't recognize he wasn't in the right garb and, he, and we weren't seated in the right. He could have done all that. He just goes, no, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Which leads us to perhaps the most powerful little lesson in this story today. The next best thing to not sinning is to confess the sin immediately. The next best thing to not sinning is to confess the sin immediately. 
Now let me just declare something. You're going to sin. And I'm going to sin. I'm saying even though we're fighting to do the right thing, we're praying, God, help us walk this out the right way. Jesus, we want to follow. There are going to be moments that we sin, and therefore, this is important for us to understand. And I'm saying to you, if we would deal with our sin more like this on a regular basis, that when it occurs, we immediately jump on the solution we would all experience a lot less hurt in our lives. But when we sin and then we let it roll, and we said that thing and it hurts someone and it grows, and it grows, and the tentacles start to attach to more places than we can imagine. Man, if we just would deal with our sin this way, so much less pain. Now, something else I want to make sure we understand here. Paul does this publicly because his sin was public. I mean, it's in, a, it's in this big setting Right, All the Jewish leaders, we've got Roman uh, soldiers and commanders. I mean, it, it is a public, he deals with it publicly. He confesses it publicly because it's a public situation. He does this personally because he had spoken against the high priest personally. I'm saying this because there are times that you may have, let's say, an attitude towards someone. And they don't know it. I'm sure this has never happened to you. An attitude, and they don't know it. And God says to you, that's wrong. And you know it. You, you feel it. You feel the conviction of that. You know the guilt of that. And sometimes you're like, I know it's wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to fight it for a while, right? And so we, we let the hurt grow. But, but you, you know it's wrong, and you know it's time to make it right. How do you make it right? You confess the sin to God. And then simply start to treat the person right. You say, well... Don't you need to go to them? I'm saying lots of times no. Because they don't even know that there's anything there. There have been moments that I have experienced people come to me and say, Jeff, pastor, I, I, I need to confess, you know, this, this was sort of an attitude that I may have had toward you. And at the end of the conversation, I'm like, well, I didn't know that. You didn't treat me wrong. But now that I know that, now I got to deal with this whole distrust thing that you just brought up. It would have just been better if you just took that to God. I'm not the one that needs to forgive. I didn't even know. God's the one who forgives you. And then you just start treating this situation right. Sometimes when I get to the end of those conversations with them, I want to go, was this really about you coming for me? Or is this about you getting some sort of credit? Right? Sometimes you don't need to make public what just needs to be between you and God. 
But then there are other times when the sin is public and it is personal that we need to do what Paul does and we respond immediately. Now watch what happens next. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees, Luke gives us a note here, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believed all these things. Now, now I believe Paul just made a strategic move. The sin, I don't think that was strategic. This is strategic. And it says he realizes what's at play here in the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. We got Pharisees and we got Sadducees. They're funny little names, but you see it all the way through Scripture. Really, back in, in that day in Jewish life, there were really three different sects, if you would call it. One was also the Essenes, but the Essenes were more of the, the outlying, almost think more like monks type of, uh, of outlying area around the Qumran, around the Dead Sea. Um, but these two are very much in public life. And so you got Pharisees who are what I'm going to call the super legalist. They were the ultra conservative they were the super-duty diesel fundamentalist. That's who they were in their day. But they were also the supernaturalist. The Pharisees believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in, 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 the, in the spirit world. They, they believed in all those things. While the Sadducees were, were a little more of the, the rationalist of their day. They, we, we, they would be the liberals of their day. That's what we would call them. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spiritual man. Therefore, there was nothing. When a person died, they just died. There is no heaven. There is no hell. You can see the contrast. I wish that I could come up with like some modern day example of two parties who are supposed to together lead a nation, but often seems like those two parties only care about their own agendas so much at times that they never actually get around to leading a nation. If I could think of such an example, I would use it today, but I can't. The only thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees ever agreed upon, as far as I can tell in the Bible, was to get rid of Jesus and to get rid of Paul. That's the only thing I can find. It's the only thing they ever agreed on. The rest of the time they fought, which is exactly what they do in this story. Paul knows he has no shot at a fair trial, if you will. He knows they've already lied about him. He knows that this, this deck, it is stacked. And so he strategically turns the Sanhedrin on itself. 
And the first thing he says is, I'm a Pharisee, right? Which suddenly alienates half the room because the others are Sadducees. And all the Pharisees are like, well, maybe he's not so bad. He is a Pharisee. And uh, and the Sadducees are going, no, he's horrible because he's a Pharisee. And then then he brings up about the resurrection. And I've already told you that the the Sadducees did not believe in in a resurrection. They didn't believe in any life after. The the Pharisees very much believed. And so all of a sudden, the fight is on. Verse 9 describes it to us. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What? (laughs) They care more about winning their argument than they even do about, is there right or wrong with this man? Isn't that wild? They're the same people who are trying to kill him They want Paul dead. They've beat him already. And suddenly, they want to declare there's nothing wrong. You know why? Because they want to win. What a picture. We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander, that's the Roman commander, was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Suddenly, Paul, in a way, is not even the center of attention. This, it is turned to shouting. They are fighting. And it just very clearly says, I mean, it's violent. How sharp is this move by Paul. I mean, this is shrewd, which leads me to what might be, might be the most powerful picture in this little story. Paul's heart toward God keeps him in tune with the wisdom of God. I'm saying how smart to like see the scenario for what it is, to be able to read the room and and to go, how how do I handle this situation? How smart was this? How wise was that for Paul to just cause the implosion to happen within the Sanhedrin? And I'm saying it's because uh, Paul regularly moves with the wisdom of God, but the reason he can move with the wisdom of God is because his heart is constantly seeking to be in tune with the wisdom of God. And in this particular story, that required that he confess his sin as soon as it happened. I don't think he intended to speak against the high priest, but when it happened, what does he do? He just immediately goes, I'm wrong. God said, don't do this. I did that. He admits it. That confession immediately is a part of keeping his heart next to the heart of God. And when your heart is in tune with the heart of God, you are in tune with the wisdom of God and you are able to navigate difficult circumstances. Paul, in a way, diverts the attention 
The Roman commander still can't get his answer of what this is all about. And so the Roman soldiers, again, are used to remove Paul from the situation. Anybody need to be reminded that God can use even the ungodly to accomplish his purpose? This is the second time that he's used the Roman authority to keep Paul alive. God's back is never against the wall. (laughs) He is never running out of options. This time Paul is rescued, taken back to the barracks, it says. Probably some kind of cell. Remember, he's a prisoner. And my mind goes toward... I wonder what that night was like for Paul out of all of that chaos and, I mean, literally he almost dies a couple of times in this story. And what would it be like for you after all that, all that chaos, all that energy, all that, man, adrenaline? Surely somewhere in the night, at least part of Paul's thoughts have to be, like, I wonder where this goes from here. And what follows is a most extraordinary verse. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. I'm not sure I know any more comforting words in all of Scripture. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Jesus stands beside Paul. Now, I'm going to tell you that I have never seen Jesus. I've never seen Jesus with my eyes standing beside me, but I can tell you that there have been many times that I have sensed Jesus near me. And I will admit to you that it is often in times of struggle, times of loss, times of uncertainty, like I'm not sure what to do here, which raises the question like, like, why is that when I tend to sense him? And the honest answer is probably because I am more intentional about looking for him when I am in need. But I've learned there are times Jesus makes me know he's with me. 
There are numerous times that I can look back through my life and Jesus made it known for me that he was with me. And what I have learned is that there are certain moments that he makes known he is with me so that I know he is always with me even when I don't sense him with me. I want you to hear the statement I'm about to make. My awareness of God doesn't determine where he is. And your awareness of God doesn't determine where he is. We want to go, well, I I really sense God was with me this time. I got news for you. He's been with you every time. Every time. Your awareness does not determine his location. Sometimes, though, he will make you aware. That's what he does for Paul in this instance. He's aware he's with him so that we will know he is always with us. The Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells where? With us. In us. He is always with us. Yes, there are certain moments that he just kind of brings that to a realization that is, that is so supernatural and more than usual, I'm going to call it, but it is the reminder to us that he is always with us. And I want you to just see for a moment what the presence of Jesus meant for Paul and what it means for us. The presence of Jesus, right? It, it means he encourages us. He encourages us. The word was take courage. That's what he said to Paul. Take courage. I, I want to read a text for you. We're just going to leave this up because I want you to see this list. But this, this text is not on the screen, but it was just later in the week that I found this. I, I want you to just hear how what Paul says here. He, he's writing to the Corinthians, the second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. That's how he calls him. The God of all comfort. Well, Paul's life must be cushy. No, listen to this. Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble. With the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Come on. Most of us act as though comfort is found when we can avoid all struggle. What Paul is saying to us and what he came to find is that actually the greatest realization of comfort is when you on mission following Jesus into dangerous territory find yourself in very uncomfortable, sometimes even persecuted circumstances. It is there that the comfort of God is realized to the infinite degree. Jesus' presence, man, it comforts us, it encourages us, but it also commends us. This is weird. Like, we don't often talk about this. He he says to Paul, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, That's what Jesus says to Paul. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem. It means, Paul, you gave full witness. It means you finished your work there. 
In other words, here's a moment in Scripture where it's not just after your life is over that you may hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But here it seems to be that Jesus speaks into Paul's life while Paul is still on the journey and he's saying, well done. You did everything that I asked you to do in Jerusalem. And there are times that the presence of God, come on, when you're going through struggles, not only is it this courageous, he's saying, come on, I'm giving you comfort. I, I'm telling you, I, I'm with you. And he's saying, come on, well done. And I have to wonder if in that split second, Paul heard Jesus say, you have done everything that I wanted you to do. And Paul's like, are we done? Like, is this over? But no, there was one more piece. The presence of Jesus directs Paul here because he says, what you have done in Jerusalem, now I want you to do that where? In Rome. And I have to imagine in that room, in that cell, there was some movement of either hands toward heaven or a gigantic grin that has to come across the face of Paul because he's like, we're going to Rome. This isn't over. He, he, nobody said, how are we going to get there? That's going to be an interesting story the rest of the way. But he knows he's going. He got direction from God. There, there is, God has spoken on the matter. Before we're done today, I just want to encourage you to think back over all the times that you as a Jesus follower have sensed his presence in the situation that you found yourself in. I mean, maybe, right, it was a relationship, something of pressure situations, whether it was on a team or, or in, a, in a classroom or in a boardroom. And I'm saying, come on, from locker rooms to classrooms to boardrooms to hospital rooms, do you remember in those moments of conflict how many times you've sensed Jesus was there. Don't you forget that. Because in the days of head, even when you can't feel him there, he's there. I have stood at more grave sites than I can count. People who have lost spouses, who've lost parents, They've lost children. And there have been moments in the dead of winter that we are sitting out on a hillside as the wind just whips through that cemetery. It is the most gut-wrenching, bone-chilling moments. And there have been moments I have sensed Jesus there. Maybe it was in a struggling marriage, but Jesus was there. Maybe it was as an exhausted parent, but Jesus was there. Maybe it was a loss of employment. Like, what are we going to do now? How are we going to make this work? But Jesus was there. Maybe it was in uh, uh, like one of those decisions that we think is bigger than other decisions because it seems to affect so much. Like, where do I go to school or what job should I take or right, who should I marry? 
Mary, the Lord was there. The next time you find yourself in one of those situations, even if you can't feel him, don't you forget. Don't you forget, your awareness does not determine his location. He is there. He is there. Maybe you would say, I want that. I want that. My first question to you is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I'm not asking you, do you know about Jesus? I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Because what he offers to you is not just an unload of information about him, but a relationship with the king of this universe. How do you do that? It's you turn to him in faith. You turn to him in faith. It is a turning that admits, I have, I have sinned against him. And Jesus, I need you. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead and I am, I am reaching out to say, will you forgive me? And I want you to be king of me. And he will. You will find him there. Those of you who have done so, you say, I, I wanna know I want to know he's there. I want to know his presence. Before I pray for you, I simply want to read a little statement by, he's a scholar, he's a man by the name of Dallas Willard, and this is how he said it. Learning to hear God is much more about becoming comfortable in a continuing conversation and learning to constantly lean on the goodness and love of God. You hear him? You want to hear from God? It is much more about being comfortable in a continuing conversation with him and leaning, learning to constantly lean on the goodness and the love of God. It's more about that than it is about turning God into an ATM for advice or treating the Bible as a crystal ball. He's right. Because what we're talking about today is about knowing Jesus. A relationship with him. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to sing a song, a declaration about his mercy that is real. I want to invite you today that if you have never turned to Jesus in faith, asked him for forgiveness, and asked him to be the king of your life, Today, you would do that. It's not magic words. It's your heart to him. If, you, if you've done that somewhere along the way, I, I, I want to encourage you today to declare to him, God, I, I want there to be a continual conversation with you.
God, I want to lean into your goodness and your love. God, forgive me when I have treated you like an ATM where I just come to you only when I need what I need. God, I want to know what it is to love you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for including a story where we get a real picture of a man that we so respect, a man that gets it right. It feels like 99% of the time, a man that at times responds supernaturally when people hurt him. And yet today in a story, we, we see him, I think, react and mess up. But you give us a beautiful picture of what we do in those moments. And God, I'm praying for your church that you would help us to do that. God, we want to stay close to your heart. God, I, I don't mean that you leave us when we mess up. I just mean that sin clouds our ability at times to hear your voice and to, to really make the decisions that, that, that we want to make according to your heart. God, will you help us deal with our sin quickly when it happens? That we might be your people who are, who are just open line with you. We hear you. And we praise you for the moments that we sense your presence. Thank you for those moments of, of struggle that we have sensed that you are right with us. But God, help us to remember you give us those moments to remind us you are with us always. Maybe some folks who are hearing my voice today going through some real hurt, going through some struggle. Some maybe can sense you, some not. But if they are your kids, God, will you reaffirm you are with them? I pray for those who need to put their trust in you the first time. I pray for those who need to admit, God, we've treated you more like an ATM than our God. Thank you for what you have shown us today. Thank you for a mercy that is real. Together, God, we declare we love you. In the name of Jesus, amen.